This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book and is number nine of a series entitled The Son, referring, of course, to the Son of God. It is our custom at these meetings to read a portion of scripture together. Those of you who are listening, if you care to join us, we are going to read Hebrews chapter 10. I want to start this study of the references to the Son, as they occur in the Epistle to the Hebrews, by referring to a passage in chapter 10. <coughs> After that, we go back and look at the references as they stand. You have the little outline in front of you, but in the first place, I want you to look, if you will, at the words, verse 5, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Verse 7, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. And then later on, we read about the offering, verse 10, of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Here is something which is vital, something which goes right down to our deepest need, the setting aside of all sacrifice, all system on one person, and one work only. If we fall down here, if we fail here, there's no alternative. It goes on to tell you that the offering once made, never to be repeated. There remaineth no more offering for sin. So you see, the sonship of Christ, the body of Christ, the offering of Christ, and all that grows out of it for us are linked together. Now in the first case, what is my office up here, standing here? Somebody might say, oh, to explain the scriptures. Friends, if that's the case, I better sit down. Because there are many things that are inexplicable. Let's face it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Could you explain it? If you did, you're a better man than I am. I can only read that that's what it says. But what's involved? What's involved in creating anything, let alone the heavens and the earth and all their complicated relationships, things distant, things near, things tremendous in size, things microscopic. God created them all. And we read it. Well, it's my, my job as an expositor to expose what the scripture says. But I may be just as baffled as you are as to know how to explain it. I may have to leave that to that day when I shall know even as I know. And this epistle tells you that faith, which we have to exercise when we read God's word, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, and gives you sample after sample like those who saw, as it were, endured as seeing him that is invisible. So I come back again here. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, whether you believe Christmas, is the birth of Christ, or whether you don't, it's a small matter. That's to your own conscience. I think the last thing that um, 
is, the last thought is, in my mind, that our Saviour was not born on December 25th. But what I am glad of, he was born sometime in that year. That's the thing most important. And I also read that it was the fullness of time when he came. No hesitation about that. It was the right moment. Now when he came into the world, he said, A body, hast thou prepared me. Now could you think I could explain that, friends? I wouldn't attempt it. How could anyone who is coming into the world before they're born say, A body, hast thou prepared me. Let's go back to a lower order of things. I believe I could take to myself the language of Psalm 139. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Thou didst know thee and every part of thee before I was brought to birth. Can you explain that? Or you could give me all sorts of technical terms, but you leave me just as blank as ever. Could you explain how, without God, an eye with a lens and an optic nerve and a retina and a tear duct to wash it and eyelashes to protect it were all fashioned in the dark? Can you tell me how an ear with its marvellous balancing and its uh, uh, ability to translate vibrations of air into sound and send a message to the brain and we get music or you listen to my voice. Can you explain it? Do you know if you cut the statue of a man identical to the man himself and tried to stand him up on his two feet he'd fall over whatever you did with him? Do you know every time you stand and talk to somebody before you say, well, good night, muscles are in play all the time keeping you poised and balanced. And they were all put to there before ever you could walk at all, before you had any life. Do you know that a heart was made for you? And for nine months it never part, never acted as a pump at all. You had no circulation of your own. Do you know that a little trap door shut when I came into the world and yelled? And it's been shut ever since, thank God, otherwise I should have to go to the hospital quickly. Do you know I had lungs that never breathed? I had a digestive tract with all its necessaries before ever there was any food. I had teeth incipiently in my gums when I never had any food to chew. But you mean to tell me I could explain it all? I couldn't explain it, but I know it's true. So as the psalmist said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Well, now we get to a greater mystery. Whoever it may be, I'm perfectly certain that nobody else in the whole history of man has ever said, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will. O God, a body hast thou prepared me. Is there anyone that you can think of the greatest person that's ever lived who could possibly adopt those words for himself without being making himself ridiculous or blasphemous. So you see, when we speak about Christ as the Son of God, we think we know all about it till we examine it. We're on very sacred ground here, friends. 
And my business is to point out to you what the scripture says. And it's our business to believe whether we can fully explain it to ourselves or one another or not. Because most of the quarrels that have arisen in the creed makings of the church have arisen because men have gone one step further and they've tried to explain what God has never explained but has told them. I remember hearing somebody speak to somebody. He says, I'm not asking you, I'm telling you, he said. Well, God says, I'm not asking you, I'm telling you. And the word of God is not the probing of men trying to find out, but it's the revelation of God telling them. Now then, if he has withheld explanations, it's because explanations are not due. And faith is a tested thing. It breathes where it cannot always prove. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, and so on. Well, with that proviso, let us look at these references in this wonderful epistle to the Hebrews, because you, shall, you will be struck with certain passages that seem to contradict one another. Now, supposing we come down to the human plane, the man who wrote it was just an ordinary man like you and me. Uh, but on the other hand, he must have been a little bit better than you and me because not the ordinary man could write an epistle like the epistle of the Hebrews. I mean, just as a piece of literature. But we believe that this is a part of the inspired word of God. And so taking the two together, it's something that God wanted this man to write. And this man himself had no hesitation in putting things down that seemed to contradict one another. And we've got to say, well, if we only knew all there is to know, we'd know there's no contradiction. But we don't know all there is to know. You know the old example, the missionary out in the midst of cannibalism in Africa. He was told by the chief he could understand and believe that, a, that Jonah swallowed the whale, or whichever way it was, but you couldn't make him believe that people could walk on the top of water because he'd never seen ice and couldn't conceive it. Well, there may be many other things that we've never seen and cannot conceive that are true. Have you heard of the the um, agnostic ant with all its wisdom and a poor little brainless centipede met one day on the road? And the agnostic wise ant said, God, he says, how do you know which leg to move next? And the poor little centipede got a hundred legs he stuck there. He didn't know. He didn't know how he knew. But he, he had to move everyone in their proper order, otherwise he'd never get along. He stuck there all night. He got perishing cold. He couldn't move. And then as the tip of the sun came up at sunrise, he leaped for joy. That, he said, oh, I can run as it is. You see, you don't have to have everything explained before you can believe it. So you'll be dead and buried before the explanation entered into your skull and mine. Because I'm faced with the fact that there are certain statements made. All I long to know just a bit further. But God says to me, you wait till you grow up and I'll tell you. My father said that to me. I put some questions to him one day and he said, boy, when you're 18 and you don't know, come to me and I'll tell you. I believe God says that to you and me, friends, in another context. Because if we knew some things now, it might be more disastrous to us than if we were kept in 
just ignorance and trusted God. Well now let's come and look at these references to the Son of God in Hebrews and will you look at these charts that you have been given. The first occurrence is chapter 1 verse 2 and that of itself involves a problem. It's in contrast to the prophets. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, God has used another manner, something so strange and wonderful it's never been repeated and never will be. No longer is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah or through the prophet David. Because when it says, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. I know you've had this before, but I must repeat it because it's vital. The word his isn't there, it's in italics. And you couldn't possibly have an English statement saying, he hath in these last days spoken unto us by Son, for that's not good. And then when you look at the word by, you find it's the ordinary preposition in. So just as we say you speak in English, it says here, God has spoken in Son. What is that? What do you mean? Well, hasn't he got a title? In the beginning was the word. God has spoken in Son. And the word was with God. And the word was God. Well, how could he be with God and, and he was God? Don't ask me, friends. I'm only telling you that's what's written. And all things were made by him. Well, if that doesn't mean creation, what does it mean? And we'll see it's here in front of us. So, if I read the Hebrew scriptures, which I cannot, except stumblingly through them, I can refer to anything and verify it, it's all right. I come across this, that God spake in El Shaddai. God spake in Jehovah. So the invisible God who no man hath seen, has spoken in Jehovah. He has spoken in God Almighty. And in these last days he has spoken in Son. Not merely in his Son as a mouthpiece, but he has clothed himself as it were, and he has come down as a man, because the emphasis in this book is that he was God, and yet he was man. And they cannot be subdivided and they cannot be explained. But if we haven't got the one man mediator, we have no representative before the throne of God. Because only a man could represent a man. But if we have not a mediator who is more than man, how can he represent God? And Job posited this question in the early days. He said, oh, that there were a dazed man, an umpire, between us, who could lay his hand upon us both. There's only one in the whole record of the word of God and history who could lay his hand upon both and be a thoroughly uh, trustworthy representative of all that's of God and all that is of man. <laughs> Do you notice in Romans the fifth chapter, uh, John the fifth chapter, I'm sorry, uh, among other things, it says, he has put, given all judgment into the hands of Christ, because he is the Son of Man. 
Don't you see what God's done? He's, he's initiated there that which is a part of English law, that a man should be judged by his peers. We're not going to be judged by an invisible God who inhabited eternity, whose name is holy. We're going to be judged by someone who walked this earth, who sat weary on a well, who asked a woman for a drink, who was spit upon, who was crowned with thorns, who died the ignominious death of the cross. It'll never be possible for anyone to turn round and say to him, well, you never knew what it was to live in this world. He did. He has passed through depths that we have never sounded. That's the son of man. Let's be thankful that that is so. So we have this expression meeting us at the beginning and holding us up for a minute. God has not merely sent somebody this time. Oh, he did. But in some way, he has come himself. And it is supplemented in verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory. The effulgence of his glory. The glory of God is not a thing that the eye can see. Because the eye can only see what is visible. And we are assured over and over again in the scriptures that no man has seen God at any time. God is invisible. So, in order to see, we have to some, have some form of reducing that light and reflecting it to ourselves. See, light is streaming from you to me or from my face to you, but you can't see the light leaving me. It's not radiating like an angel. But you couldn't see me without. So, here we have an accommodation to our limitations, that we cannot see the glory of God, not yet, but we can see the glory of God, as the other scripture says, in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, it's coming down to our level. And then it says, is the express image. And that is the English word character. And it may refer to the characters of the alphabet, because his name is the word, and he spells out to us, letter by letter, that which we can appreciate of God. But it's also our English word character. Because if you ask the question, what is God like? There's no answer. Unless you can be, you can point to Christ, because how are you going to begin to explain God who is not limited by time or place? We believe that God hears our prayers and is taking knowledge of us, you and me. In fact, the scripture assures us that not a sparrow falls to the ground without his knowledge or consent. And then we're told you're more value than any sparrow. But when you think of a sparrow, and then of the Milky Way, and the distant stars, that some of the light's been travelling for so many million years, it, 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 you stagger, you can't take it in. That's good. Well, that overwhelms, doesn't it? So when Moses said, show me thy glory, oh God said, no, you cannot see my face and live. I will show you the parts that belong to the back. For that's only a, con a condescension to human figures. And so we have Moses 
is said to have spoken face to face with God as a man speaketh with his friend. But he adds, and the similitude of the Lord did he behold. And Colossians says, Christ is the image of the invisible God. And the true translation of the book of Genesis is when Adam was created, the words are that he should be made in the likeness of our image. He was made in the likeness of Christ and was the first Adam, whereas Christ is the second Adam. He was the first man and Christ is the last. And so we have coming, I hope, into our minds this fact. Great is the mystery of godliness. And it goes on to explain that that is God was manifest in flesh. I'd like you to turn for a moment so that everyone listening shall have this uh, before you. The first of Timothy. And if you say, well, I, I know all that, you be thankful you know it because we're going to give an opportunity to somebody else. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice, immortal, invisible. Now when you look at chapter 6, the same epistle. Verse 14, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings, and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, no man hath seen nor can see. What is said of God, without further explanation in chapter 1, is said of him who is King of kings and Lord of lords, who is coming again and whose name is Jesus Christ. And it says he dwells in light which is unapproachable, which no man hath seen nor can see. That's of himself. But in his condescension, as the man Christ Jesus, we're going to be with him, and we're going to be like him. But we're not going to penetrate into this part of it. It is the glory which thou hast given me. I have given them. But he says, I pray that they may behold my glory, which thou gavest me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. A glory that's given to the Son is given because he was our Redeemer. But a glory that belongs to him in this sphere is beyond our comprehension. Well now, in that same epistle, Timothy, where it says in chapter 1 and in chapter 6, this character of God, it says in verse 15, But if I carry long, I have written these words that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. Now I put a full stop there, and I cannot stop to explain. He's done now with instructions about a bishop and bringing up his family and deacons and their wives in a church. I do not believe that the church is the pillar and ground of truth. Some people do. That if you go to church and belong to church, well that's all right. 
But I think we start again without the article the a pillar and ground of truth and confessedly great is the, is the mystery of godliness. And he goes on to say God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seed of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. The mystery of godliness and it's confessedly great so we're facing it. God has spoken in Son. And this one now is said to be the brightness of his glory, the character, the express image of his person, and so on. Well then at the other end of, this, of the uh, epistle, chapter 13, verse 8, we haven't got the word Son, but we have an echo from chapter 1. Let's look at the beginning and end of this. Chapter 13, verse 8. He says in verse 7, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow. Why should you be exhorted to follow somebody's faith? Well, friends, if that somebody has the goal of all their teaching, these words, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, and today, and forever, that's worth listening to. Now you find in chapter 1 that that word same is given there. It's brought right through to the end and repeated, the same. So will you turn back again to chapter 1? Verse 10. And our Lord in the beginning has laid the foundation of the earth. Well, I've only got to turn to chapter and verse in the Old Testament to know that that is God. He laid the foundation of the earth. He challenged Job, he said, were you there when I put the foundations? And of course Job had to confess that he'd been speaking out of turn. So this one who is called a son is here addressed, and our Lord, in the beginning, has laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the work of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou Remainest. And they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, that thou art the same. Thy years shall not fail. So here we have at the beginning, God manifesting himself, clothing himself, coming in some inexplicable way in the flesh as man. And the emphasis upon the fact that while everything changes, he remains the same. Then we go right through the epistle to the last chapter. He brings it out again. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. And to a person who was soaked in Old Testament teaching, he would know that anyone who was the same yesterday and today and forever was only an opening up of the Hebrew name Jehovah. He who was, that is, and is to come. Well now, when we look at this one, the sun, we find certain things said about it. For instance, let's leave this first chapter, we'll come back to it again in a moment. This one of whom it is said, in the beginning thou hast laid the foundation to the earth, it says in verse 4, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Would you say, 
Do we need a Bible to tell us that somebody who is the express, who is the brightness of the glory of God and the express image of his person, who upholds all things by the word of his power, do we need to be told that he's better than angels? Yes, you do. Why? Why, because you're like so many people, you only read a bit and you don't read far enough. Of course, I'm not blaming you, friends, who are listening. You're the exceptions to the rule. Chapter 2, verse 6. But one in a certain place testified, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honour. Thou didst set him over the works of thy hand. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. And it stops there. It doesn't say, all sheep and all oxen. Oh no, this is not sheep and oxen now. This is the mystery of Christ being revealed. All things under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death round with glory and honour, oh yes. So in chapter 2, he voluntarily went lower than the angels. And in chapter 1, by inheritance, now that's for our sakes, because he didn't need it for his own. For our sakes, he has been made greater than the angels and taken us with him. So you see, the more you look at it, the more you can understand how difficult it is to say, as you understand it all, You can only stand back and wonder. You can almost hear the word saying to you sometimes when you look at these scriptures, take off thy shoes, come off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Occasionally, I don't pose as being a very pious person. I'm just the same as anybody else. But occasionally, I shut my lexicon and I shut my grammar and by myself, with nobody looking at me, I just stop. And I just speak to God. And I recognise that I'm dealing with that which goes beyond the ability of any man. But I accept it because I believe that God has spoken. And one day, what is inexplicable to me now in my limitations will be explained and made glorious when the time comes. So we have the word in son at the beginning and we have the same which echoes what is said in the first chapter. But now in chapter 1 we have two other references. Verse 5 For unto which of the angels said he at any time Thou art my son this day have I begotten thee. And again it says in verse 6 and again now that word again should go with the next statement. Not again and again and again, but when he again bring it in the first begotten into the world, that's the future, he said, and let all the angels of God worship him. Now here's a book which condemns the worship of anyone except God. Even the angels respect that. When John collapsed at the feet of the angel in the book of the Revelation, the angel forbade him, he said, worship God. Yet here, without further explanation or do, let all the angels of God worship him. There are some folks, and I just have to honour their 
sensibility in their conscience. They don't, they, they couldn't worship Christ because only God can be worshipped. Well, I say you've got to cut out Hebrews chapter 1 then because it definitely says so. It doesn't leave you to infer it. And it also says this, no man can honour the Father who doesn't honour the Son and the honour is to be equal. And you say, how can you make that out? I don't make it out at all, friends. I'm only telling you, you see. And the more we get the word of God as it's written into heart and mind, the more possibilities there are that the Spirit of God will take of those things of Christ and make them known to us. Our stumbling block is we want to know everything at once. And we're just like children, little children, and we're not satisfied. I trust that we are beginning to realise that we better go slowly over these things which God has drawn a veil. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And chapter 5, verse 5, you will see he echoes that. Now he's speaking about the high priest and the Aaronic priesthood. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made of high priest. But he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. He saith also in another place, Thou art a priest, forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Well then coming back to chapter 1, to, to take all in our embrace of time off a bit, uh, chapter 1 verse 8. But unto the son he saith, Who is speaking? God. Unto the son he saith, what does he say? Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Oh, I see. But you see, is the Son of God. Oh, yes, it says so. And it says in verse 9, Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee. It says so. Well, how do you make that out? I don't make it out, friends. I give credit to the man who wrote it that he had got enough sense to know that he was something that he might have explained but he didn't. And God has put these words. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever addressed to Christ. And then he says, Therefore God, even thy God. I believe there is an answer to that. But we have to go elsewhere to find it. Not for the moment. We leave it. Now when you come to chapter 3, Verse 6. He's contrasting Moses. Right through this epistle, Moses, Aaron, sacrifices, tabernacle, offerings, they're all put in contrast with Christ, who is better than them all. Here's another one. He says in verse 4, Every house is builded by someone, but he that built all things is God. Well, that's True enough, we understand that so far. And Moses, verily, was faithful in all his house as a servant for the testimony of those things which were to be spoken after, but Christ as a son over his own house. Now we're told that he that built all things is God, and the son is not a servant, now he's over his own house. Whose house are we if we hold the past? the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. And in chapter 4, 
14, we have another reference. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold, let us hold fast our profession. And now we come to one of the most solemn passages which I'm so sorry to have to crowd in the next few minutes. And that is chapter 5. Verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned the obedience by the things which he suffered. Have you got any problems here? He prayed unto God in the Garden of Gethsemane that he should be saved from death. And he was heard. Now you say to me now, you're, you're not true there. Because he was taken from the Garden of Gethsemane, given an illegal trial and crucified. But I say you've got the wrong end of it, friend. Luke, the beloved physician, is the only one who tells you that when he was in that garden, he was such in an agony that he dropped sweat mingled with blood. And you've only got to know the barest outlines of medicine to know that a bloody sweat means a complete failure, a fatal seizure is near, and Christ was being so attacked in the garden of Gethsemane that unless there was an intervention, he would have died in that garden. And that would have prevented the whole work of salvation, and that's what Satan was out for. So he prayed unto him, who was able to save him from death, and was heard. And he went right through, but he was so weak, that they put the cross on another man, and the apostle has written, he was crucified in weakness. But not weakness of purpose. Fancy writing an epistle so that you should encourage people not to give up and not to draw back and put straight into it that Christ himself suddenly woke up to the fact that he was going to be crucified and he drew back and asked that it might pass from him. Well, even I wouldn't make such a mistake as that in writing a book. I'd leave that out. The next thing is this. We've been rather misled by the word feared. This word occurs only once more in the epistle. And it is found in chapter... I'd like to give you that one. Chapter 12, verse 28, when it says, Serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear or piety. It isn't being afraid, this word, but city of it is we've got one word that stands for being afraid of one that reverences God. So here we have, he was able to save him from the death that threatened in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was heard because of his piety, not because of his fear, or because he was drawing back. That's the Son of God. And then notice, in chapter 10, 29, he was trodden underfoot, and again it makes you think of the Mount of Olives, or the Olive Garden. Trodden underfoot, Gethsemane, the Olive Garden. Trodden underfoot by those who ought to have accepted him. And so we have these passages, they're set out for you. I've given you what little explanation it's possible. I've given you a suggestion that may be helpful to you. But I still have to say, confessively great is the mystery of godliness. But to think 
it was for me and for my salvation that all this should take place. I come back where I started. No one else. It's not conceivable that anyone else in the whole wide range of creation should have said before he was born, Lo, I come, a body hast thou given me. But that is true of this one and sets him apart from all else. And were it not for that, we should have no saviour, no mediator, no sacrifice, no offering, no hope, and no possibility of being accepted with God. So I commend it to you, and where we have been not able to supplement as we should, wait upon God himself as you study, and take these lessons that are on the tapes, merely as introductions, and not final words, but rather that you should cast yourself upon God himself, who alone can teach and explain these things which are so difficult for our usual manner of interpretation.